Chapter 23 of Public Opinion by Walter Littman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Public Opinion, Chapter 23. The Nature of News. All the reporters in the world working all the hours of the day could not witness all of the happenings in the world. There are not a great many reporters, and none of them has the power to be in more than one place at a time. Reporters are not clairvoyant. They do not gaze into a crystal ball and see the world at will. They are not assisted by thought transference. Yet the range of subjects these comparatively few men manage to cover would be a miracle indeed, if it were not a standardized routine. Newspapers do not try to keep an eye on all mankind. Footnote. See the illuminating chapter on Mr. John L. Given's book, already cited, on Uncovering the News, Chapter 5. They have watchers stationed at certain places, like police headquarters, the coroner's office, the county clerk's office, city hall, the White House, the Senate, House of Representatives, and so forth. They watch, or rather, in the majority of cases, they belong to associations which employ men who watch, quote, a comparatively small number of places where it is made known when the life of anyone departs from ordinary paths or when events worth telling about occur. For example, John Smith, let it be supposed, becomes a broker. For ten years he pursues the even tenor of his way, and except for his customers and his friends, no one gives him a thought. To the newspapers, he is as if he were not. But in the eleventh year he suffers heavy losses and, at last, his resources all gone, summons his lawyer, and arranges for the making of an assignment. The lawyer posts off to the county clerk's office, and a clerk there makes the necessary entries in the official docket. Herein step the newspapers. While the clerk is writing Smith's business obituary, a reporter glances over his shoulder, and a few minutes later, the reporters know Smith's troubles and are as well informed concerning his business status as they would be had they kept a reporter at his door every day for over ten years. Footnote, cited above, page 57. When Mr. Given says that the newspapers know Smith's troubles and his business status, he does not mean that they know them as Smith knows them, or as Mr. Arnold Bennett would know them, if he had made Smith the hero of a three-volume novel. The newspapers know only, in a few minutes, the bald facts which are recorded in the county clerk's office. That overt act uncovers the news about Smith. Whether the news will be followed up or not is another matter. The point is that before a series of events become news, they have usually to make themselves noticeable in some more or less overt act. Generally, too, in a crudely overt act. Smith's friends may have known for years that he was taking risks. Rumors may even have reached the financial editor if Smith's friends were talkative. But apart from the fact that none of this could be published because it would be libel, there is in these rumors nothing definite on which to peg a story. Something definite must occur that has unmistakable form. It may be the act of going into bankruptcy, it may be a fire, a collision, an assault, a riot, an arrest, a denunciation, the introduction of a bill, a speech, a vote, a meeting, the expressed opinion of a well-known citizen, an editorial in a newspaper, a sale, a wage schedule, a price change, the proposal to build a bridge, there must be a manifestation. The course of events must assume a certain definable shape, 
and until it is in a phase where some aspect is an accomplished fact, news does not separate itself from the ocean of possible truth. Naturally, there is room for wide difference of opinion as to when events have a shape that can be reported. A good journalist will find news oftener than a hack. If he sees a building with a dangerous list, he does not have to wait until it falls into the street in order to recognize news. It was a great reporter who guessed the name of the next Indian viceroy when he heard that Lord so-and-so was inquiring about climates. There are lucky shots, but the number of men who can make them is small. Usually it is the stereotyped shape assumed by an event at an obvious place that uncovers the run of the news. The most obvious place is where people's affairs touch public authority. The law does not concern itself with trifles. It is at these places that marriages, births, deaths, contracts, failures, arrivals, departures, lawsuits, disorders, epidemics, and calamities are made known. In the first instance, therefore, the news is not a mirror of social conditions, but the report of an aspect that has obtruded itself. The news does not tell you how the seed is germinating in the ground, but it may tell you when the first sprout breaks through the surface. It may even tell you what somebody says is happening to the seed underground. It may tell you that the sprout did not come up at the time it was expected. The more points, then, at which any happening can be fixed, objectified, measured, named, the more points there are at which news can occur. So, if some day a legislature, having exhausted all ways of improving mankind, should forbid the scoring of baseball games, it might still be possible to play some sort of game in which the umpire decided according to his own sense of fair play how long the game should last, when each team should go to bat, and who should be regarded as the winner. If that game were reported in the newspapers, it would consist of a record of the umpire's decisions, plus the reporter's impression of the hoots and cheers of the crowd, plus, at best, a vague account of how certain men, who had no specified position on the field, moved around for a few hours on an unmarked piece of sod. The more you try to imagine the logic of so absurd a predicament, the more clear it becomes that for the purposes of news-gathering, let alone the purposes of playing the game, it is impossible to do much without an apparatus and rules for naming, scoring, and recording. Because that machinery is far from perfect, the umpire's life is often a distracted one. Many crucial plays he has to judge by eye. The last vestige of dispute could be taken out of the game, as it has been taken out of chess when people obey the rules, if somebody thought it worth his while to photograph every play. It was the moving pictures which finally settled a real doubt in many reporters' minds, owing to the slowness of the human eye, as to just what blow of Dempsey's knocked out Carpentier. Wherever there is good machinery of record, the modern news service works with great precision. There is one on the stock exchange, and the news of price movements is flashed over tickers with dependable accuracy. There is a machinery for election returns, and when the counting and tabulating are well done, the result of a national election is usually known on the night of the election. In civilized communities, deaths, births, marriages, and divorces are recorded, and are known accurately except where there is concealment or neglect. The machinery exists for some, and only some, aspects of industry and government, in varying degrees of precision for securities, money, and staples, bank clearances, realty transactions, wage scales. It exists for imports and exports, 
because they pass through a custom house and can be directly recorded. It exists in nothing like the same degree for internal trade, and especially for trade over the counter. It will be found, I think, that there is a very direct relation between the certainty of news and the system of record. If you call to mind the topics which form the principal indictment by reformers against the press, you find that they are subjects in which the newspaper occupies the position of the umpire in the unscored baseball game. All news about states of mind is of this character, so are all descriptions of personalities, of sincerity, aspiration, motive, intention, of mass feeling, of national feeling, of public opinion, the policies of foreign governments. So is much news about what is going to happen. So are questions turning on private profit, private income, wages, working conditions, the efficiency of labor, educational opportunity, unemployment, footnote. Think of what guesswork went into the reports of unemployment in 1921. Monotony, health, discrimination, unfairness, restraint of trade, waste, backward peoples, conservatism, imperialism, radicalism, liberty, honor, and righteousness. All involve data that are at best spasmodically recorded. The data may be hidden because of a censorship or a tradition of privacy. They may not exist because nobody thinks a record important, because he thinks it red tape, or because nobody has yet invented an objective system of measurement. Then the news on these subjects is bound to be debatable when it is not wholly neglected. The events which are not scored are reported either as personal and conventional opinions, or they are not news. They do not take shape until somebody protests, or somebody investigates, or somebody publicly, in the etymological meaning of the word, makes an issue of the item. This is the underlying reason for the existence of the press agent. The enormous discretion as to what facts and what impressions shall be reported is steadily convincing every organized group of people that whether it wishes to secure publicity or to avoid it, the exercise of discretion cannot be left to the reporter. It is safer to hire a press agent who stands between the group and the newspapers. Having hired him, the temptation to exploit his strategic position is very great. Quote, Shortly before the war, says Mr. Frank Cobb, the newspapers of New York took a census of the press agents, who were regularly employed and regularly accredited, and found that there were about 1,200 of them. How many there are now, 1919, I do not pretend to know, but what I do know is that many of the direct channels to news have been closed, and the information for the public is first filtered through publicity agents. The great corporations have them, the banks have them, the railroads have them, all the organizations of business and of social and political activity have them, and they are the media through which news comes. Even statesmen have them, end quote. Footnote, address before the Women's City Club of New York, December 11, 1919, reprinted, New Republic, December 31, 1919, page 44. Were reporting the simple recovery of obvious facts, the press agent would be little more than a clerk. But since, in respect to most of the big topics of news, the facts are not simple, and not at all obvious, but subject to choice and opinion, it is natural that everyone should wish to make his own choice of facts for the newspapers to print. The publicity man does that, and in doing it, he certainly saves the reporter much trouble by presenting him a clear picture of a situation out of which he might otherwise make neither head nor tail. But it follows that the picture which the publicity man makes for the reporter 
is the one he wishes the public to see. He is censor and propagandist, responsible only to his employers, and to the whole truth responsible, only as it accords with the employer's conception of his own interests. The development of the publicity man is a clear sign that the facts of modern life do not spontaneously take shape in which they can be known. They must be given a shape by somebody, and since in the daily routine reporters cannot give a shape to facts, and since there is little disinterested organization of intelligence, the need for some formulation is being met by the interested parties. The good press agent understands that the virtues of his cause are not news, unless they are such strange virtues that they jut right out of the routine of life. This is not because the newspapers do not like virtue, but because it is not worthwhile to say that nothing has happened, when nobody expected anything to happen. So if the publicity man wishes free publicity, he has, speaking quite accurately, to start something. He arranges a stunt, obstructs the traffic, teases the police, somehow manages to entangle his client, or his cause, with an event that is already news. The suffragists knew this, did not particularly enjoy the knowledge, but acted on it, and kept suffrage in the news long after the arguments, pro and con, were straw in their mouths, and people were about to settle down to thinking of the suffrage movement as one of the established institutions of American life. Footnote. See Inez Haynes Irwin, The Story of the Woman's Party. It is not only a good account of a vital part of a great agitation, but a reservoir of material unsuccessful, non-revolutionary, non-conspiring agitation, under modern conditions of public attention, public interest, and political habit. Fortunately, the suffragists, as distinct from the feminists, had a perfectly concrete objective, and a very simple one. What the vote symbolizes is not simple, as the ableist advocates and the ableist opponents knew. But the right to vote is a simple and familiar right. Now in labor disputes, which are probably the chief item in the charges against newspapers, the right to strike, the right to vote, is simple enough. But the causes and objects of a particular strike are like the causes and objects of the woman's movement, extremely subtle. Let us suppose that the conditions leading up to a strike are bad. What is the measure of evil? A certain conception of a proper standard of living, hygiene, economic security, and human dignity. The industry may be far below the theoretical standard of the community, and the workers may be too wretched to protest. Conditions may be above the standard, and the workers may protest violently. The standard is at best a vague measure. However, we shall assume that the conditions are below par, as par is understood by the editor. Occasionally, without waiting for the workers to threaten, but prompted, say, by a social worker, we shall send reporters to investigate, and will call attention to bad conditions. Necessarily, he cannot do that often. For these investigations cost time, money, special talent, and a lot of space. To make plausible a report that conditions are bad, you need a good many columns of print. In order to tell the truth about the steel worker in the Pittsburgh district, there was needed a staff of investigators, a great deal of time, and several fat volumes of print. It is impossible to suppose that any daily newspaper could normally regard the making of Pittsburgh surveys, or even inner church steel reports, as one of its tasks. News which requires so much trouble as that to obtain is beyond the resources of a daily press. Footnote. Not long ago, Babe Ruth was jailed for speeding. Released from jail just before the afternoon game started, 
he rushed into his waiting automobile and made up for time lost in jail by breaking the speed laws on his way to the ball grounds. No policeman stopped him, but a reporter timed him and published his speed the next morning. Babe Ruth is an exceptional man. Newspapers cannot time all motorists. They have to take their news about speeding from the police. Bad conditions as such are not news, because in all but exceptional cases, journalism is not a first-hand report of the raw material. It is a report of that material after it has been stylized. Thus, bad conditions might become news if the Board of Health reported an unusually high death rate in an industrial area. Failing an intervention of this sort, the facts do not become news until the workers organize and make a demand upon their employers. Even then, if an easy settlement is certain the news value is low, whether or not the conditions themselves are remedied in the settlement. But if industrial relations collapse into a strike or lockout, the news value increases. If the stoppage involves a service on which the readers of the newspaper immediately depend, or if it involves a breach of order, the news value is still greater. The underlying trouble appears in the news, through certain easily recognizable symptoms, a demand, a strike, disorder. From the point of view of the worker, or of the disinterested seeker of justice, the demand, the strike, and the disorder are merely incidents in a process that for them is richly complicated. But since all the immediate realities lie outside the direct experience, both of the reporter and of the special public by which most newspapers are supported, they have normally to wait for a signal in the shape of an overt act. When that signal comes, say through a walkout of the men or a summons for the police, it calls into play the stereotypes people have about strikes and disorders. The unseen struggle has none of its own flavor. It is noted abstractly, and that abstraction is then animated by the immediate experience of the reader and reporter. Obviously, this is a very different experience from that which the strikers have. They feel, let us say, the temper of the foreman, the nerve-wracking monotony of the machine, the depressingly bad air, the drudgery of their wives, the stunting of their children, and the dinginess of their tenements. The slogans of the strike are invested with these feelings. But the reporter and reader see at first only a strike and some catchwords. They invest these with their feelings. Their feelings may be that their jobs are insecure because the strikers are stopping goods they need in their work, that there will be shortage and higher prices, that it is all devilishly inconvenient. These, too, are realities. And when they give color to the abstract news that a strike has been called, it is in the nature of things that the workers are at a disadvantage. It is in the nature, that is to say, of the existing system of industrial relations, that news arising from grievances or hopes by workers should almost invariably be uncovered by an overt attack on production. You have, therefore, the circumstances in all their sprawling complexity, the overt act which signalizes them, the stereotyped bulletin which publishes the signal, and the meaning that the reader himself injects, after he has derived that meaning from the experience which directly affects him. Now the reader's experience of a strike may be very important indeed, but from the point of view of the central trouble which caused the strike, it is eccentric. Yet this eccentric meaning is automatically the most interesting. Footnote, see chapter 11, The Enlisting of Interest. To enter imaginatively into the central issues is, for the reader to step out of himself, and into very different lives. It follows that in the reporting of strikes, the easiest way is to let the news be uncovered by the overt act, 
and to describe the event as the story of interference with the reader's life. That is where his attention is first aroused, and his interest most easily enlisted. A great deal, I think myself, the crucial part, of what looks to the worker and the reformer as deliberate misrepresentation on the part of newspapers, is the direct outcome of a practical difficulty in uncovering the news, and the emotional difficulty of making distant facts interesting, unless, as Emerson says, we can, quote, perceive them to be only a new version of our familiar experience, end quote, and can, quote, set about translating them at once into our parallel facts, end quote. Footnote, from his essay entitled Ardent Criticism. The quotation occurs in a passage cited on page 87 of Professor Rollo Walker Brown's The Writer's Art. If you study the way many a strike is reported in the press, you will find, very often, that the issues are rarely in the headlines, barely in the leading paragraphs, and sometimes not even mentioned anywhere. A labor dispute in another city has to be very important, before the news account contains any definite information as to what is in dispute. The routine of the news works that way, with modifications, it works that way in regard to political issues and international news as well. The news is an account of the overt phases that are interesting, and the pressure on the newspaper to adhere to this routine comes from many sides. It comes from the economy of noting only the stereotyped phase of a situation. It comes from the difficulty of finding journalists who can see what they have not learned to see. It comes from the almost unavoidable difficulty of finding sufficient space in which even the best journalist can make plausible an unconventional view. It comes from the economic necessity of interesting the reader quickly, and the economic risk involved in not interesting him at all, or of offending him by unexpected news, insufficiently or clumsily described. All these difficulties combined make for uncertainty in the editor when there are dangerous issues at stake, and cause him naturally to prefer the indisputable fact and a treatment more readily adapted to the reader's interest. The indisputable fact and the easy interest are the strike itself and the reader's inconvenience. All the subtler and deeper truths are, in the present organization of industry, very unreliable truths. They involve judgments about standards of living, productivity, and human rights that are endlessly debatable in the absence of exact record and quantitative analysis. And as long as these do not exist in industry, the run of news about it will tend, as Emerson said, quoting from Isocrates, Quote, to make of moles mountains, and of mountains moles. End quote. Where there is no constitutional procedure in industry, and no expert sifting of evidence in the claims, the fact that is sensational to the reader is the fact that almost every journalist will seek. Given the industrial relations that so largely prevail, even where there is conference or arbitration, but no independent filtering of the facts for decision, the issue for the newspaper public will tend not to be the issue for the industry. And so to try disputes by an appeal through the newspapers puts a burden upon newspapers and readers, which they cannot and ought not to carry. As long as real law and order do not exist, the bulk of the news will, unless consciously and courageously corrected, work against those who have no lawful and orderly method of asserting themselves. The bulletins from the scene of action will note the trouble that arose from the assertion, rather than the reasons which led to it. The reasons are intangible. The editor deals with these bulletins. He sits in his office, reads them, rarely does he see any large portion of the events themselves. He must, as we have seen, woo at least a section of his readers every day, because they will leave him without mercy, 
if a rival paper happens to hit their fancy. He works under enormous pressure, for the competition of newspapers is often a matter of minutes. Every bulletin requires a swift but complicated judgment. It must be understood, put in relation to other bulletins also understood, and played up or played down, according to its probable interest for the public, as the editor conceives it. Without standardization, without stereotypes, without routine judgments, without a fairly ruthless disregard of subtlety, the editor would soon die of excitement. The final page is of a definite size, must be ready at a precise moment, there can be only a certain number of captions on the items, and in each caption there must be a definite number of letters. Always there is a precarious urgency of the buying public, the law of libel, and the possibility of endless trouble. The thing could not be managed at all without systematization, for in a standardized product there is economy of time and effort, as well as a partial guarantee against failure. It is here that newspapers influence each other most deeply. Thus, when the war broke out, the American newspapers were confronted with a subject about which they had no previous experience. Certain dailies, rich enough to pay cable tolls, took the lead in securing news, and the way that news was presented became a model for the whole press. But where did that model come from? It came from the English press, not because Northcliffe owned American newspapers, but because at first it was easier to buy English correspondence, and because, later, it was easier for American journalists to read English newspapers than it was for them to read any others. London was the cable and news center, and it was there that a certain technique for reporting the war was evolved. Something similar occurred in the reporting of the Russian Revolution. In that instance, access to Russia was closed by military censorship, both Russian and Allied, and closed still more effectively by the difficulties of the Russian language. But above all, it was closed to effective news reporting by the fact that the hardest thing to report is chaos, even though it is an evolving chaos. This put the formulating of Russian news at its source in Helsingfors, Stockholm, Geneva, Paris and London, into the hands of censors and propagandists. They were, for a long time, subject to no check of any kind. Until they had made themselves ridiculous, they created, let us admit, out of some genuine aspects of the huge Russian maelstrom, a set of stereotypes so evocative of hate and fear, that the very best instinct of journalism, its desire to go and see and tell, was for a long time crushed. Footnote, see, A Test of the News, by Walter Littman and Charles Murs, assisted by Faye Littman, New Republic, August 4th, 1920. Every newspaper, when it reaches the reader, is the result of a whole series of selections as to what items shall be printed, in what position they shall be printed, how much space each shall occupy, what emphasis each shall have. There are no objective standards here, there are conventions. Take two newspapers published in the same city on the same morning. The headline of one reads, quote, Britain pledges aid to Berlin against French aggression, France openly backs Poles, end quote. The headline of the second is, quote, Mrs. Stillman's other love, end quote. Which you prefer is a matter of taste, but not entirely a matter of the editor's taste. It is a matter of his judgment as to what will absorb the half-hour's attention a certain set of readers will give to his newspaper. Now the problem of securing attention is by no means equivalent to displaying the news in the perspective laid down by religious teaching or by some form of ethical culture. It is a problem of provoking feeling in the reader, 
of inducing him to feel a sense of personal identification with the stories he is reading. News which does not offer this opportunity to introduce one's self into the struggle which it depicts cannot appeal to a wide audience. The audience must participate in the news, much as it participates in the drama, by personal identification. Just as everyone holds his breath when the heroine is in danger, as he helps Babe Ruth swing his bat, so, in subtler form, the reader enters into the news. In order that he shall enter, he must find a familiar foothold in the story, and this is supplied to him by the use of stereotypes. They tell him that if an association of plumbers is called a combine, it is appropriate to develop his hostility. If it is called a group of leading businessmen, the cue is for a favorable reaction. It is in a combination of these elements that the power to create opinion resides. Editorials reinforce. Sometimes, in a situation that on the newspages is too confusing to permit of identification, they give the reader a clue by means of which he engages himself. A clue he must have if, as most of us must, he is to seize the news in a hurry. A suggestion of some sort he demands, which tells him, so to speak, where he, a man conceiving himself to be such and such a person, shall integrate his feelings with the news he reads. Quote, it has been said, writes Walter Badgett, footnote, on the emotion of conviction, literary studies, volume 3, page 172, that if you can only get a middle-class Englishman to think whether there are snails in Sirius, he will soon have an opinion on it. It will be difficult to make him think, but if he does think, he cannot rest in a negative, he will come to some decision. And on any ordinary topic, of course, it is so. A grocer has a full creed as to foreign policy, a young lady a complete theory of the sacraments, as to which neither has any doubt whatever. End quote. Yet that same grocer will have many doubts about his groceries, and that young lady, marvelously certain about the sacraments, may have all kinds of doubts as to whether to marry the grocer, and if not, whether it is proper to accept his attentions. The ability to rest in the negative implies either a lack of interest in the result, or a vivid sense of competing alternatives. In the case of foreign policy or the sacraments, the interest in the results is intense, while means for checking the opinion are poor. This is the plight of the reader of the general news. If he is to read it at all, he must be interested, that is to say, he must enter into the situation and care about the outcome. But if he does that, he cannot rest in a negative, and unless independent means of checking the lead given him by his newspaper exists, the very fact that he is interested may make it difficult to arrive at that balance of opinions, which may most nearly approximate the truth. The more passionately involved he becomes, the more he will tend to resent not only a different view, but a disturbing bit of news. That is why many a newspaper finds that having honestly evoked the partisanship of its readers, it cannot easily, supposing the editor believes the facts warrant it, change position. If a change is necessary, the transition has to be managed with the utmost skill and delicacy. Usually a newspaper will not attempt so hazardous a performance. It is easier and safer to have the news of that subject taper off and disappear, thus putting out the fire by starving it. End of chapter 23